And if you need a Bible, there are Bibles in the foyer. Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray that now you would give us understanding of your word. Uh, more, uh, that you would so shed the light of your truth in our hearts that we would believe what you say, that we would be people of faith. Help me to speak your word now truthfully and clearly and help us all to receive it as the word of the living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, faith's had a, a bad press in our society of late, hasn't it? Uh, Richard Dawkins has been popularising the view that faith is just a kind of blind trust in the absence of evidence. And others, of course, more religious, have been going around suggesting that faith is a kind of psychological muscle that you can exercise to get things done, your own power. They teach you to have faith in your own faith. And those misrepresentations of faith can mean we can kind of be embarrassed sometimes about talking about faith, calling on people to believe. And of course, in our own circles, we can so stress God's sovereignty and salvation that we can actually start to downplay faith's role as the proper human response to God. Neglect this response that God so clearly calls for to his resurrection. Remember Jesus preaching the gospel says, repent and believe, have faith in the gospel. Yet we can sometimes suggest we're passive in believing and so we don't talk of faith as something we stir one another up to show, challenge each other to respond to God with. And we can live as if faith is something that we don't need to nurture or sustain. Yet faith, though misrepresented and neglected, faith, our believing, is important. See there Hebrews 10.38, my righteous one will live by faith. Now faith here is not talking about some abstraction, some purely self-contained human psychological ability as if you can have faith like you have intelligence or self-consciousness. No, faith is always faith in someone or something and here it is faith in Jesus the Jesus whom we come to know in the preaching of the gospel better in Hebrews. Faith is faith in the true and living God by having faith in his son Jesus by whom God has spoken to us in these last days. Having faith, we see verse 39, believing perseveringly the gospel of Jesus is the way we preserve our souls for everlasting life. In fact, the message of this book really is to not be unbelieving, faithless like that generation, the wilderness generation we heard of in chapter 3, those people who against all the evidence they'd received of God's power and faithfulness refused to believe the word of God. Now we mustn't be unbelieving. Rather, throughout this book we've been encouraged to be persevering in faith in Jesus, imitators, as says our author, of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So despite it being misrepresented, despite our tendency to neglect it, faith is important. Faith, faith in Jesus, persevering in faith in Jesus, saves now and at the last day it gives us life. 
But in the face of our experience, whether it's of opposition or of just sickness or poverty experience, that seems to deny that God is for us, how can we be confident that faith in Jesus is what we need to have? Oh, and in the face of our own frailty and weakness, our little strength and imperfect obedience, how can we be confident that persevering faith, just keeping on believing what Jesus has said and trusting in what he has done, revealed to us in the gospel, how can we be confident that persevering faith will do the job, save us forever, that faith is what we need, all we need to preserve our souls? Well, having said that it's by being those who have faith that we live, preserve our souls, the author of Hebrews goes on to encourage us in faith by showing us in chapter 11 what faith, faith in the true and living God, does. He starts with a punchy definition that we're about to look at and he follows that with many examples from the Old Testament of what faith does in the lives of God's people. A faith that while responsive to the word, is not passive but active in the fulfilment of the promise. Now he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now if you read different translations, you'll realise that the words translated assurance and conviction in the ESV are actually not easy words to translate. Uh, the words translated there can have both an objective sense, reality, proof, speaking of something outside of us, uh, that's the sense the translators of the CSV have chosen, <coughs> and subjective senses, assurance, conviction, speaking of something in us. What are we to think of that? Well, first of all, let's think about what's clear. Faith, he says, is the assurance of things hoped for. That is, faith establishes a relationship with what's hoped for. What's hoped for is talking about the hope we have from the promises of God. You see, Christian faith is responsive to the word of God. Faith, says Paul in Romans, comes through hearing. The word of promise comes first and gives us hope. Faith doesn't create the promise, just as faith doesn't create the unseen. These realities exist and faith is the way we relate to them so that they have a life-giving impact on our lives. Uh, and secondly, verse 1 is not a full exhaustive definition of faith. Our author is actually just highlighting aspects of faith that are directly relevant to his encouraging us to persevere in faith. So what is he saying here about faith? Well, he's saying faith gives the object of hope the force of a present reality. And so it allows the believer, the person of faith, to live now confident of their future realisation. Our faith acts as if the unseen is more real in a sense than the seen and so gives proof to the reality of the unseen in life. Uh, let me attempt an illustration, something I'm not particularly good at and do only occasionally, so I enjoy it. But think of someone who is engaged, okay? He or she has a promise, don't they? A promise that one day, a set day, their fiancé will marry them. Their faith in the promise, which is faith in the one who has promised, 
affects their present, doesn't it? It finds expression in specific activities. They give up time to do guest lists, book venues, do marriage prep. Oh, and it finds expression in the way they conduct themselves daily. They don't flirt, they don't pursue someone else they might find attractive. Oh, and yes, usually they save their money. <laughs> if those things weren't seen in their lives, you would either doubt the promise or you doubt whether they believe the promise. You see, their faith in their beloved means that what is hoped for is now the governing reality of their lives. And their faith means that what is unseen because it's in the future is actually real to them now, determining their behaviour. Their faith expressed in acting according to the promise also gives proof of the promise to others. And living that way, their faith in their fiancé's promise becomes the means of coming to the fulfilment of the promise. Their faith doesn't create the promise, but it is the means of bringing that promise to fulfilment, of getting to that longed-for day, ready for that day. Now, that's the way faith in God through faith in his promise, faith in what is as yet unseen but spoken of in his word, works. It means we live with confidence and assurance, as if what is promised is even now sure and certain, as if what is unseen is seen by our inner eye more vividly and clearly than the world around us. <coughs> Such faith gives proof of the unseen, makes that hope a forceful reality in the present. And such faith brings us to the realisation of what is promised at the time God has set, either in the near future or the distant future. But this brief characterisation our author gives us in verse 1 is actually not meant to satisfy us. It's actually an invitation to read on, to learn the reality of faith in the lives of Old Testament believers, people who acted as if what God said that was unseen, as if what was promised was already present. So convinced were they that God was faithful. And so he says, look at the people of old. They were commended for faith. So let's do that. Let's follow our author into the lives of these Old Testament saints. But notice, before he launches into the Old Testament believers, he reminds his hearers and us that we already know the effect that he is speaking of. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is not an understanding that can be reached by observation, can it? Only by revelation. Nobody was there at the time the world was made. <coughs> Yet it is fundamental that the universe was made by the word. It's fundamental to our understanding of and living in the world. And it's not an irrational leap in the dark, it's the rational response to the trustworthiness of the Almighty God. Now, verse 3 is a reference to the Genesis 1 account, the revelation that all that is was brought into the being, into being by the word of God. That's repeated, isn't there? God said, God said, God said, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. But he is not talking about faith here is just giving assent to the Genesis record. Faith in God by believing his word does more. Understand speaks of more than just simple knowing. 
It speaks of insight into the reality Genesis 1 teaches. The universe, the ages, all created being in this age and the next is brought into being and put in order by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now that sentence is an explicit denial of the philosophy of materialism, of the claim that matter is prior and eternal. <coughs> the world is not, in Johnson's words, self-contained, self-derived or self-sustaining. The unseen doesn't depend on the seen. It's not an emergent property from matter. It doesn't depend on the material and the tangible. In fact, it's the opposite. Faith turns the conventional understanding on its head. Prior to what is seen is the word. Prior to matter is spirit. Sustaining what is seen is the word. The word of the Lord, that's more substantial than what we can see, touch, feel, the sensations that so often fill our mind and dominate the horizon of our thinking. More substantial is the word of God. It's faith in the word that grasps this unseen reality and that orders its thought and behaviour on this understanding. It's faith that allows us to live rightly in the world because we understand the reality of the world rightly. This word of God is not denied or disempowered or limited by uncooperative or dead matter. It orders and shapes, it brings into being from no matter. And if the word that brought all that is into being says there's a moral order to the universe, unseen, then faith knows that it is there and it's sure and certain, even if the world of appearance would seek to deny that. Seeing the unseen, faith is the foundation of wisdom, the wisdom that's the source of a life of flourishing in the world, brought into being by the word. Faith knows the lesson that God taught in the wilderness. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, what this word declares to be, will be. No matter what our circumstances, no matter how barren our present appears to be. Obeying this word gives us life. It's not our life that gives life to the word. Now, of course, there's a lot more to be said, just going down verse 3. But his point is that already we know what he's just said of faith, that faith is the conviction of things unseen and unseeable, but declared to be so by the word of God. He's already shown believers the truth of what he has said of faith. But you ought to pause in a sense and ask yourself, even over this verse, have you let faith teach you about the reality of your world? Believingly, have you believingly meditated on the word so that your understanding of the world conforms to God's revealed reality? Have you let faith give you understanding? But this is just the beginning. He moves on to look at the impact of faith in the lives of the Old Testament saints, the demonstration of the effect of faith in relating us to God who is unseen and bringing us to live consistently with what God has promised 
and so come to its fulfilment. Now, the first two characters uh, you heard about, Abel and Enoch, we might find a bit obscure because there's not a lot about them in Genesis. And when we look in the Genesis record, we see no mention of their faith. But both Abel and Enoch and Noah as well were quite prominent and well-known figures in the literature of the synagogues of the time. They were part of the religious imagination of the people he was writing to. And so he starts with them to make two fundamental points about faith, points that relate to the verse from Habakkuk that he's already quoted, that the righteous by faith live. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, the Genesis account just tells us that God had regard for Abel and his offering. That is, that God accepted both Abel and also accepted his offering. And at the time, in the first century, there was actually a lot of speculation, well, there still is actually, about why Abel was accepted and Cain was not. Oh, some at the time said it was because he offered a more valuable sacrifice, a living animal, a firstborn. Oh, others more richly inclined that said Cain didn't make his offering correctly. But our author brushes all that speculation aside, relying on the insight about relating to God he'll make explicit in verse 6 that without faith it's impossible to please God. He says, It was Abel's faith by faith that made both him and his offering acceptable. It was through faith that he was commended, attested to be righteous. Abel's righteousness is a repeated theme in the New Testament and it's Abel's righteousness that is actually seen in God accepting his offering. But it was not the offering, the sacrifice, that made Abel righteous. No, that was the proof of his righteousness, not its cause, it was his faith. And Abel's righteousness from faith <coughs> that made his offering acceptable. And the author adds, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Through that same faith he is yet speaking. Remember Habakkuk 2, quoted in verse 10? My righteous one will live by faith. You see, the author here is not referring to Abel's blood crying out from the ground for vengeance, which our author knows of and will speak of in chapter 12. No, he's saying Abel speaks. This is the testimony of Abel, that those who are righteous by faith live even if they die. He is speaking. There's a big chapter, lots of big ideas. But here's another question. Are you right with God by faith? Faith in the one sent from God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right with God by faith in the promise of Jesus that his death was for our sin. Now, also saying there can be no righteousness, no acceptance by God, no matter what you do or try to do, without faith. Without faith now in his son, whom he's given us for our sins.
Faith is the source of righteousness, of being right with God, accepted with God. And it is faith that makes our worship of the unseen God acceptable. And our author's confidence that it was Abel's faith is based on what he'll tell us about faith and the relationship with God in verses 5 and 6. His reflection on the brief story of Enoch contained in Genesis 5. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken he was commended as having pleased God and without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now our English uh, versions, what you heard read, translate the Hebrew text but the Greek version of the Old Testament uh, reads slightly differently. As you see up there, that's what LXX means. It means the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. The Greek version uh, uh, <coughs> is the version that our author quotes and it reads, pleased God for where the Hebrew has walked with God. You see, the Greek text emphasises by repetition that Enoch pleased God and it's this what our author takes up. It's because he pleased God that he did not see death that God took him. So how did Enoch please God? What was the source of his not seeing death? Well, it was his faith. By faith, he says, by faith Enoch was taken up. By his faith, for without faith, verse 6, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There is faith, believing, in all our relating to God. For God is unseen. He's not an object of this material world to be known and related to through sight and touch. Of course, our faith does not give God being. God existed before Enoch and God had revealed his being in creation and word to Enoch's ancestors. But there is faith, believing response to that revelation in all our relating to God. <coughs> now, author highlights two things that are necessary in our faith, our believing. Firstly, that God is. Again, this is more than acceptance of God's existence. It actually has echoes of the name God will reveal of himself later. I am who I am. Those who draw near to God draw near believing he is God, one who is eternal and has life in himself dependent on no created thing. They believe he is. And secondly, they believe that he rewards those who seek him. That is, that he is personal and desires relationship with the finite persons he's created. God's not indifferent or distant. He believes that we were made to relate to him and he is almighty so he can reward those who seek him. And that reward is not extrinsic, something external to the relationship, something outside of and in addition to knowing God. No, that reward is the goal of our seeking. It is God himself. God himself. Listen to the psalmist. Who is God? Well, 
who, who, what is the experience of those who are in relationship with God, at peace with God? They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights for with you is the fountain of life and in your light do we see light. Well, Psalm 43, God, my exceeding joy. Well, listen to the Lord Jesus. This is eternal life that they know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou, whom you, hast sent. Now, the reward for those who seek God is finding God, knowing him. It's by faith and only by faith that we can relate to the invisible God. And that faith is the source of our persevering in relating to God. For those of faith believe God rewards those who seek him. It is not vain to pursue him. And so perhaps you're here this morning, you're unsure, uncertain of, in a sense, the reality of the world, the universe. You've heard of God, but you know you don't know him. Well, hear what God says. He is the rewarder of those who seek him. Jesus, his son, said, seek and you'll find. Have faith in that word. Call out to the God who rewards those who seek him and you will find him. Oh, and the next thing our author says is that faith heeds God's warning of judgment and so saves our lives. This is what we see in the life of Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, the story of Noah is still famous. Russell Crowe starred in the 2014 movie of the story. We know it. God told Noah of his coming judgment on the wicked of humanity, the wicked violence of humanity, an event that being in the future could not by definition be seen. God's determined to bring an end to that wicked violence. He revealed that to Noah. And because of his faith, his believing what God in his graciousness to Noah had told him, because Noah believed that God meant what he said, Noah responded appropriately to the warning. He did as God commanded, built the ark, which saved him and his family. Think of the power and goodness of faith. Noah would really have no conception of the severity of the flood. Such a catastrophe was unprecedented in its totality. It never happened before in anyone's experience. And can you imagine how weird it would have seemed to Noah's neighbours? There's Noah neglecting his other work to build this huge craft. And this is not some backyard dinghy for a little bit of fishing on the river to build this craft <coughs> so far from the sea. And, you know, you can always knock off building a boat and there are a lot of incomplete backyard projects, but Noah never did. What was absurd to the world to those who measured the possibilities by sight and experience of nature, was just right to faith. Believing the word, Noah kept on at the job until it was finished. And that believing response saved not only Noah himself, but his whole family. 
And notice, faith in God's word wasn't just one way to life. It was the only way of escaping the destruction of the flood. And by this, he said, it says, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You see, the world was left without excuse by Noah's actions. They couldn't find fault with God, God who had done exactly what he had said he would do in bringing that judgment. Believing God, heeding him, would have saved them just as it saved Noah. It was the world's refusal to listen, their determination to exclude God, that brought them to disaster. And Noah, it says, comes to be an inheritor of righteousness, of life. The just by faith shall live. Life now, and also the life that Jesus would bring, was Noah's inheritance. Faith spares us from judgment by moving us to respond appropriately in the present to God's warning of future but as yet unseen judgment. And that faith alone saves still. And God does warn of judgment. He warns of a judgment to come through his Son. Jesus warns of that judgment, of his returning glory. And at that time, God will give to everyone what they deserve for what they've done. And Jesus says at that time that he will separate all people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, some to everlasting life, those who have listened to him and heeded him, and some to everlasting judgment. In fact, Jesus uses the story of Noah in Matthew 24 to warn us to be ready for that day. But concerning that day, the day of his return in glory and doubt, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It will separate. And so he says, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Be ready, he says, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You know, our world mocks the idea that God would bring all to account, that the crucified Jew Jesus will appear in glory and power, that all they see and no will be swept away in a moment. And it seems weird to our world to live as if that judgment, that day of reckoning will be, to live now in the reverent fear that obeys God. But Jesus warns us, get ready and stay ready. Get ready by repenting turning back to God, confessing that you have been wrong to ignore and disobey him and asking the Lord Jesus for forgiveness and to be ruler of your life. Get ready and stay ready by persevering obedience to Jesus. And we do that by faith. See, faith will listen and act on Jesus' word. Faith will save. Will faith get us there? Will it get us there in our frailty and weakness? Yes, 
says our author. Yes, says God's word. Faith in Jesus by believing his word is powerful and good. It orients orients you to the reality of the world. Jesus is Lord of creation, a creation made by and sustained by his word. So you make right choices in this world. Our faith justifies you. It's the source of your righteousness and the acceptance of your deeds. And faith relates you to the true and living God as you draw near to him, believing he is. He is as he has revealed himself to be in Jesus, Father, Son and Spirit. And such faith in Jesus will bring you to the reward God has promised to those who seek him. Life in his presence delighting in him and of course such faith is the source of readiness for that day when Jesus is revealed in glory and he welcomes his people to himself. So sustain and nurture your faith. Listen to Jesus. Act on his word. Meet with others to encourage each other in believing that word. Oh and yes, suffering for him acting in the certainty of what is hopeful. Don't think faith is passive and don't let your faith be passive. Don't think faith is something to be embarrassed about or hide. Declare your faith in Jesus, for by faith in the faithful Saviour, we will come to the presence of God and all that he has promised us. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray in your mercy we would hear your word and we would be people of faith, people who believe and act because we know that what you promise is sure and certain. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.